I know the customers, the community really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I think it's real important that uh, the customers out there, that they thank a line worker. I mean, they're out there uh, trying to get their life back to normal as quick as possible. But uh, again, they're going to do it as safely. So please be patient with them. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. For this episode, we're going to be joined by two guests. One will be able to share some historical comparisons to the strength of this monstrous storm. And our second guest used to lead restoration efforts in this part of the country. And he can offer a little bit of perspective of what the process is like and just all that goes into making sure that everyone's safe throughout the process. So our first guest is Justin Petrusas, who's an operational meteorologist at Storm Geo. So provides a lot of information and intelligence to companies to help them prepare for these sort of storms. So, I mean, we all saw the the forecast that was pretty major, but can you talk a little bit about just how fast the storm intensified? Yes. So it made landfall as a tide is one of the fifth strongest storms to make landfall anywhere in the United States based on wind speed, 150 miles per hour sustained. Um, it registered a peak gust of around 172 miles per hour near the landfall point in Port Fushan. Um, and it tied uh, just as last year, Hurricane Laura hit uh, Louisiana a little bit farther west and near Lake Charles, uh, 150 mile power wind. So that's the first time any state has seen two 150 mile power hurricane landfalls in consecutive years. But yeah, back to uh, what you originally asked for. Um, Ida is what we call, uh, as meteorologists, rapid intensification. And that's defined as at least a 35 mile per hour intensity gain over 24 hours. Ida just blew that out of the water. It turned from a depression uh, to a very strong category four 150 mile per hour hurricane in three days. In its final day over water, Ida strengthened by 65 miles per hour. That tied it with Humberto back in 2007 for the most significant intensification uh, burst into landfall. And that stat is according to the Associated Press. And I know sometimes they're able to look back at some of the data, and it seemed like this was almost towing the line of a Category 5. Yes, that's correct. It's going to take probably a couple weeks or maybe even months for the Hurricane Center to officially determine whether it made landfall as a Category 4 or Category 5. But as of now, Ida made landfall officially as a strong Category 4 hurricane with maximum sustained winds of 150 miles per hour. For a Category 5 that is 157 miles per hour sustained. So right now, based on preliminary data, it was seven miles per hour below Category 5 strength. But the Hurricane Center is going to be doing a lot of research and looking at past observations, determining whether they're reliable or not. So it's definitely within the realm of possibility that Ida could be upgraded to a Category 5 hurricane at landfall because, like I mentioned earlier, it, it did register a peak wind gust of 172 miles per hour near the landfall point in Port Fouchon as of now. And what sort of rain totals did we see in some of these areas? Rainfall was definitely a big issue with the system. It wasn't moving very fast throughout its life cycle over the United States. Um, so it did dump a lot of rain, a lot of tropical moisture. Um, right now, uh, radar estimates up to around 17 inches were reported just west of New Orleans. A confirmed report uh, near Slidell, Louisiana, 
reached just below 16 inches of rain. Very significant flooding occurred across a large part of eastern Louisiana and into southern Mississippi. And the rain didn't stop there. Ida continued to track northeastward uh, across the Tennessee, Ohio Valley, and up into the mid-Atlantic and northeast U.S., where it also produced very, very heavy rainfall. Newark, New Jersey, picked up 8.44 inches of rain. That was its wettest day on record from Ida. Central Park in New York City uh, reached just over seven inches of rain in one day from Ida. That is its fifth wettest day on record. And there was a lot of very heavy rain and significant flash flooding that Ida brought to much of the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast U.S. as the remnants moved through that area. And I, and I know we probably all saw some of the destructive tornadoes that resulted as it moved through the Mid-Atlantic and into the Northeast. So any sense of, I don't know if you know how many there were, but just some of the bigger ones maybe. Yes, so there's going to be a lot of research that goes into that as well, determining what was straight-line wind damage from severe thunderstorms in the outer bands of Ida compared to tornadoes. But yes, it was a prolific tornado producer, um, especially uh, where it made landfall just east. There were several tornado reports in eastern Louisiana and in the southern Mississippi, and even one in Alabama that was uh, pretty strong as well. And we also saw some tornadoes up into the mid-Atlantic and northeast U.S. There were six states uh, that preliminary indications indicate that where tornadoes touched down with Ida. And uh, there was a pretty strong one. I think right now they're still investigating it, but I think I saw that there was a uh, F3 tornado into uh, Pennsylvania or in New Jersey, which is pretty significant for tornado activity up there, especially from a remnant tropical cyclone. And I know for many people, especially those impacted who saw the storm come in and have been preparing um, it, it feels like we're weeks into this restoration, but when did the storm actually clear? When, when was it that the winds actually died down so crews and first responders were able to get out and start doing the life safety work? Ida finally exited the country on Thursday afternoon. Its remnants moved into Atlantic Canada at the time. All of the winds and rain died down by around noon time, uh, Eastern time on Thursday, September 2nd. So it impacted our country for many days from beginning on the, the weekend of uh, the last weekend of August, August 29th and into 30th is when it made landfall in Louisiana and it persisted across much of the eastern half of the country until Thursday, September 2nd. Well, thank you for joining us, Justin, and for the update on the storm and for the work that you do to help make sure companies and communities are able to prepare accordingly based on what we know about these things. And obviously, storms can change quickly and everyone is different. So it's, it's great to be able to get such up-to-date information from you guys. You're welcome. Happy to help. And hopefully we'll catch a break from the intense hurricanes throughout the rest of the season. Let's hope. Thank you. And our next guest is Greg Grillo, who previously had served as the system storm incident commander in Entergy's Arkansas and greater New Orleans areas. So Greg, thank you for making some time for us today. I'm glad to be here. So even though you're no longer active in, in the energy restoration, you still are really involved with the industry helping to facilitate exercises kind of when storms aren't actually happening. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of the exercises and how broad an industry participation is? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's extremely important to have uh, exercises so you can test your processes. Also make sure people understand the processes and they can execute the processes. The exercises we have is a national response event, uh, which is looking at the entire United States uh, where we share resources uh, when we have events like this, uh, if it, it meets some type, type of criteria. Uh, but that's really, really important. And I think all utilities do exercises because you need to make sure that you're uh, ready for game day. 
that's great. And I know right now the latest count we saw is more than a cruise for more than 40 states, more than 27,000 crews are down supporting the companies impacted by this storm. So there definitely has been a, a national response to this event. And really it's these exercises are always looking for ways to improve and enhance the restoration. And I think we, we've already seen some good examples of that. And the restoration is well underway. Really customers are being restored every minute, every hour now. Can you talk a little bit about that assessment phase that companies first have to undertake after the storm clears and just how critical safety is during this part of the storm response? Yeah, damage assessment is critical to get an understanding from two perspectives. Number one, um, what facilities have been damaged, what facilities that are on the ground that may pose a safety hazard to uh, individuals. So when you get out there as quick as possible to get an understanding of what materials, what resources, and, and again, what things we need to make safe uh, to order, to, in order to make sure that uh, you know the public is not uh, injured. That's great. And some of this too is to make sure you're keeping the, the line workers safe. You need to have an idea of what's damaged and what's not as they're out working on the system. Yeah, that, that too. But I mean, mainly, Brian, uh, the main purpose is to make sure that the public is safe and to get an understanding of uh, well, what manpower materials uh, are needed to go out there and what equipment's needed to go out there and make the repairs. Got it. So there's a lot of focus. I know there's been a lot of visuals of a particular big transmission tower that had fallen, but as you, you're familiar with the system and in general, there's a lot of redundancy. So to kind of avoid single points of failure. So can you talk a little bit about how the system itself just provides kind of optionality? Because really, I think every storm is different. So the way in which companies respond and recover is probably going to be a little tailored to, to what's been damaged, where the storm hit, those sort of things. Yeah, I mean, redundant from a generation perspective, redundant from a transmission perspective, and then there's some strategic ties on a distribution perspective. So if you were to lose one transmission line, like the one across the Mississippi River, I mean, that's not the only way to feed you know, substations in the greater New Orleans area. There are other ways to feed it. There are other generating units that are out there that are tied into the transmission grid so that, uh, like I said, as you said, a single point of failure won't cause a problem. My understanding is there were like eight transmission lines that went down, which did cause some some challenges. But uh, you know, one or two, uh, they can generally work around that, switch things around, and keep the system up and running. Yeah, and I think uh, obviously this is a snapshot in time, but I think two or three already are back up and running, so they're making pretty good progress. They're getting that uh, redundancy into the 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 community now. For the client workers that are out in the field, you have a lot of folks who are coming in from out of state who aren't familiar with the terrain. So for this part of the country, are there things that they need to be on the lookout for that you might not have if you're doing restorations in New England or other places? Yeah, I mean, it's a couple of things. I mean, you, you're working in the kind of in the swamp. <laughs> so you've got to be careful, number one, just uh, to understand, uh, you know, construction methodologies. You know, if you just try to set a pole, it's going to sink. You, know, you have to put a, a brace on it. Uh, but also you got to worry about critters. You got to worry about alligators you got to worry about snakes you know you know again this it's their habitat they're probably just as scared or more scared but uh, they'll go into defensive uh, if you're not careful so just make sure you're aware of your surrounding destiny from a safety perspective whether you're working on the, the pole or if you're in the area watch out for alligators and snakes and spiders and uh, all those kind of creatures and we it's the summertime really so we know that the temperatures are hot can you talk a little bit about all the things that the line workers have to really be wearing when they're out there. And obviously hydration is a big issue, but there's a lot of equipment. And I think you call it personal protective equipment that people need to observe when they're out in the field. Yeah, speaking from personal experience, um, as far as getting uh, dehydrated, it's extremely important that they do um, hydrate regularly. But uh, some of the 
clothes they have to wear. First off, they gotta wear long sleeve shirts that have to be fire retardant. Uh, then they wear gloves. Uh, then they also wear hard hat. And uh, a lot of times they have to wear what they call sleeves. Uh, and it's extremely hot down there. So they have to make sure that they stay hydrated, that they take breaks um, so that, uh, you know, they, they don't get uh, dehydrated uh, and end up with uh, some other type of, uh, of health challenge. So it's real, real important. It's also real important from a safety perspective to make sure they get ample rest. Uh, that's why, you know, sometimes they try, they try not to work more than 16 hours straight, but if they do go over that 16 hours, it's uh, required that they get eight hours of rest. So in some cases you might see some trucks sitting in a hotel, you know, say eight or nine in the morning. That's likely because they, you know, worked later than they should have or worked past their 16 hours and had to get their eight hours rest. So again, Safety, safety, safety is the most important thing when we look at our, at our line workers out there working. And I can tell you from my experience, uh, some of the greatest people in the world. And uh, again, from my perspective, um, I'm up in Arkansas right now. And, you know, we had a uh, line go down up here and uh, those guys were out working, putting that back in. And again, we just really appreciate all they do uh, for the customers and the communities they serve. And we're, of course, still in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. So there's quite a few protocols that are in place to make sure that all these crews are uh, really just staying safe out in the field because there's enough risk going on. But the, the management teams have really made sure that uh, the COVID is factored into all the processes that are going on. So as you think about having the more than 27,000 workers down in that impacted area, there people come with different skill sets, right? So even though there's, say, we see restoration that's been going on in New Orleans. There's also work going on really throughout all the impacted areas because those crews, as I understand it, uh, it's kind of choreographed. Like you have the right skill set in the right place doing the work, and then they move to the next place just to try to make sure that the whole response is as efficient as possible. Correct, correct. And again, you you, you talk about different skill sets. I mean, you've got some some guys that work strictly in underground. Uh, you may have some guys that work strictly you know, 13 kV overhead distribution, some that are skilled to work at 34, 5 kV overhead. So again, you got some that, uh, you know, are real knowledgeable of doing stuff in rear lots and climbing poles and, you know, some that are, are more prone to do things in the front. So again, you've got different skilled people. Uh, and again, what we try to do, what they try to do is try to leverage those skills, put them to where they can work as safe, as efficient and as effective as possible. Now we're seeing a lot of images of major trees that are falling on on either houses or across streets and also a lot of power poles down and i'm sure it varies by project but if you have a big tree like that that you have to clear or even a single power pole like a wood pole you have to get back up how long do those sort of projects take it really varies it really varies it just depends upon you know you got to get a tree crew out there to, to clear the tree out the way uh, depending if you have one available um you know a couple hours then you got to get the guys out there they got to make it safe Got to make sure they do their proper uh, grounding and tagging, uh, make sure that they're coordinating them back with the distribution operations center to get a clearance uh, just to make sure they can do it safely. And they'll put, put everything back up uh, and then go in, call the DOC and those guys are backlogged, but uh, get a clearance to go ahead and uh, energize it. So it is it could be a, a, a very timely process. And people need to understand, too, that, you know, sometimes the guys out in the field are waiting to get a clearance. Uh, they're not just sitting around not doing anything. They're making sure that they get their proper clearance so they can follow safety protocols and then uh, perform the work safely. So when you see numbers out there of poles in the thousands that need to be restored, it's not like you're doing one pole every 10 minutes. I mean, each one of these is a big project. Yes, yes. I mean, you're looking at a couple of hours each pole. You know, that's why they put, you know, several crews and 
they'll leapfrog uh, ahead of each other to get the poles set, and then they'll come back and uh, string the wire. It's 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 a well-oiled machine. I mean, those guys are fantastic out there and what they do, and they all love what they do too. And Greg, you led off talking about how important it is to keep customers safe. And really, when the storm passes, there are a whole bunch of new threats that get introduced. I know we've seen some really scary and sad headlines about generator safety. So I don't know if there's anything that you might be able to share about how to use them safely or even just how to use them properly so that you're not putting the line crews at risk. Yeah, again, uh, that, that's really important, Brian. I mean, back feed is, uh, you know, is as bad as just touching a hot primary wire. Um, so if you, you know, if you're hooked up on the secondary side, it goes back through the transformer through the primary if it's not set up right. But from a customer's perspective, I mean, it's real important that keep any portable generator, you know, 20 feet away, if at all possible. Uh, make sure that when you turn it off, you wait uh, to gas it up or whatever. You wait 20 minutes before you turn it back on. And then just make sure that you're using the uh, proper carbon monoxide detection equipment, uh, because that is something that uh, people don't realize that uh, carbon monoxide is kind of a, a silent killer or, or a, a killer when you're in sleeping. And uh, so make sure you keep those generators at least 20 feet away from your home. Absolutely. And Greg, I just want to thank you because I know how much work you do to help make sure that our companies and crews are exercised and ready for these challenges and that we're identifying best practices and really learning from each other. Because at the end of the day, you really do see a lot of collectivist responses and you see the kind of full force of the industry and our government partners brought to bear whenever these disasters happen. So a big thanks to you for that piece of it, as well as really just thank you for all of those tens of thousands of line workers that are out there working long days, long hours right now to, to do the hard work of restoring power to these communities. Now, that, you know, again, I personally appreciate them too. I know they're away from their families for long durations. Uh, having been the incident commander, as you said, you know, spent several weeks away from my family. So again, I know how that feels, you know, and in a lot of cases, kind of uh, not the best conditions, uh, sleeping arrangements, food, you know, all becomes a challenge uh, due to not having availability down there. So yeah, we definitely thank them for what they're doing. I know the customers, the community really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I think it's real important that uh, the customers out there that they thank a line worker. I mean, they're out there uh, trying to get their life back to normal as quick as possible. But uh, again, they're going to do it as safely. So please be patient with them. Thank a line worker for what they do day in and day out. And you can keep up with the restoration progress and see some really amazing photos of the work that these crews are doing out in the field by following the impacted companies on social media. And if you're so inclined, use the hashtag thank a line worker and help show some support for the men and women who are really working some long hours away from their families to help restore power to the communities that were impacted by this devastating storm. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.